Turkey launches Syria offensive, vowing to wipe out IS near its border. Exclusive insight into the British training of local forces in northern Iraq. We're basically teaching them light roll vehicle drills, how to react quickly and efficiently to any contacts or any surprises that they may encounter en route. And 100 years since a vital naval force was set up. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. The Turkish military has supported Syrian rebels in taking the town of Jarablus from IS militants. Turkey stepped up its campaign this week, sending special forces along with tanks across the border, and they've been supported by US air cover. Ankara says the push is aimed at putting an end to problems in the region. In a moment, we'll hear from Paul Rogers, the Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, and our very own defence analyst Christopher Lee, also both of those guys with us all this week. But first, let's speak to Hajir Tamorian a journalist with a Kurdish upbringing and former Middle East commentator for time. Hajir, Syrian Kurdish fighters have been urged to retreat after this, uh, this victory to the east of the Euphrates River by the United States. Let's start. Why is that important to Ankara? Well, um, the Turks are very paranoid about a strip of Kurdish territory along the whole of the Syrian border, almost to the Mediterranean. <clears throat> and you will remember that last year when that the town of Kobani was uh, putting up a heroic uh, resistance against IS on three directions and yet uh, Turkey on the border starved it of even food. People felt that uh, the president of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan himself, an Islamist leader, was almost willing IS to, to win over. So the, the, it's a long history. I believe that as much as uh, helping um, to fight against IS, this particular operation has got the aim of cutting the Kurds into two. And unfortunately, um, Mr. Biden, the vice president of the United States, is going ahead almost um, uh, rubber stamping any anything that this um, rather ruthless leader of Turkey is doing. Yes, because he is in uh, Ankara at the moment, meeting with uh, President Erdogan, keen to rebuild uh, ties after this failed coup, and a lot of Western angst about the purge after this coup as well. But I mean, I think, would you say it's fair that us in the West fail to understand the dynamic fully between the Kurdish peoples, who are in, of course, Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Iran as well, and Turkey, because Turkey has long been afeared of this clamour for a Kurdistan state? Well, to some extent, Turkish nationalists have got good reasons. They have been oppressing uh, maybe 15 to 25 million Kurds in the East until recently. The very speaking of the Kurdish language has been banned. All their uh, street street names, town names uh, have been changed into Turkish. Uh, their history is banned. Everything, everything is being done to erase Kurdish history and it's not, it's not winning. I can tell you that uh, in my memory uh, as a, as a commentator on the Middle East and watching the Kurds for 40, 50 years, uh, nobody has served Kurdish nationalism as much as Mr. Erdogan has done. Uh, he has managed something that nobody else has done. The Kurds of Iran are now volunteering, for example, for the Kurds of Syria. The, the, there are senior commanders from Iran uh, ha fighting for the Kurds of Syria. Um, the all the Kurds of the Middle East, maybe up to 35, nobody knows how many, 35 million, are almost rooting to a man for the Kurds of Syria and rage against Turkey. 
So Erdogan is the man who's fortified the Kurdish spirit, as, as you see it here, but he is not going to allow any form of Kurdish state to emerge out of the mess that is currently Syria and Iraq, is he? So where do the Kurdish people who are, as you, as you say, quite together now, where do they go from here? Well, first of all, their leader, who's been in solitary confinement in on the Mediterranean island of Imrali for the past 17 years, and his will has not still been broken. He only he demands much less than the Scots have got in this country. So let's not demonize them by, by saying that, implying that they are asking for the moon. He was talking to them, Mr. Erdogan, until two years ago. Unfortunately, then he lost majority in parliament and in order to appease nationalist opinion, he, he turned against them. Um, and uh, so th this is the situation as it rests now. I'm keen. We, we've had a reporter who's been in Erbil recently uh, with British troops who are out there helping to train the Kurdish Peshmerga. I mean, we, we use this term Peshmerga a lot in the, in the British news media, but what exactly does that mean? Peshmerga. Pesh means before. Merg means death, which means uh, those who... Uh, those guards, those soldiers who, in the defence of the nation... Um, confront the enemy first of before everybody else, and it's got a long medieval uh, history. So uh, um, it's, a, it's a term of honour at the moment. Formally, it only applies to the Kurds of Iraq. Thank you very much. That's very interesting and uh, good to have that explained. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hajir, on the program. And as I mentioned, our reporter Simon Newton has been in northern Iraq, in the Kurdish part of northern Iraq, about 600 kilometres away from where the fighting has been taking place uh, in Syria this week. And BFBS was given unique and exclusive access to British forces from One Rifles, who've been deployed there and are working to train these Kurdish Peshmerga fighters. Okay, the team commander will be at the front. On a training area outside the Kurdish capital, Erbil, British troops are teaching the Peshmerga how to search for IEDs. One Rifles have been in northern Iraq for the past 16 months. Their CEO is Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Grist. So those who've, who've got experience, particularly from Afghanistan, have found this a bit of an adjustment. Those who are new to the operational tour are learning really fast. I think one of the most impressive things I've seen out here is how dedicated, how adaptable people are. They're really willing to learn. They're really willing to engage with um, the people they're training. As IS retreat, they're planting thousands of booby traps. And just a few days ago, these Peshmerga lost their own CO to an IED. Lauren is one of the sappers also involved in the training. His funeral is coming up over the next few days, and I think that's uh, really hit home with these guys. They know how important the training is that we're offering them. You are getting the general idea. The rifles are also training one of Iraq's Christian minorities, the Zeravani. Like the Yazidis, IS consider them infidels. And two years ago, 100,000 of them fled their homes near Mosul, including this young chef. When Daesh came into our villages, we were very scared. The people here are all forced to flee from their area. We feel sad for the Yazidis, and God willing, we can defeat Daesh together. The first thing we're going to do is going to have a kit check. On a training area near Suleimania, these Peshmerga troops are sorting through their newly issued kit. Along with a desert uniform comes the prized possession, a new American assault rifle. This 31-year-old Kurd lived in the UK for seven years before returning to Iraq to join the Peshmerga. ISIS only fight briefly. When they want to attack a Peshmerga base, they are drunk or drugged or come as suicide bombers. They fight for an hour or half an hour, and that is it, and the Peshmerga always repel their attacks. If it is a rainy or foggy night, they plant the bombs all over their bodies and come towards our bases on foot. 
At another training camp, the rifles are teaching the Peshmerga's emergency reaction force. This lesson focusing on how to extract themselves if their vehicles come under fire. Approach the vehicle and start getting the casualties out. The Humvees they're using were captured from IS near Kirkuk. They'd originally belonged to the Iraqi army and they already bear the scars of battle. Many of the windscreens are peppered with sniper rounds. The occupants only saved by the bulletproof glass. Dan is one of the instructors. We're basically teaching them light roll vehicle drills, how to react quickly and efficiently to any contacts or any surprises that they may encounter en route. For these Peshmerga, this British Army training is invaluable, all of it designed to equip them with the skills, tactics and firepower to defeat Islamic State. Simon Newton, BFBS in northern Iraq. And it's very interesting, listen to Simon Newton's report there, uh, bearing out a lot of what Hajir was saying about Kurds from around the world, in fact, being drawn to this fight. Well, let's uh, talk now with some more of our guests. Paul Rogers is on the line. He's Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. And with me here in the studio, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. I'm keen, really, to go back to this uh, whole Turkey issue and the fact that they've had a significant development there. What does this mean for NATO allies, really? Because they are a NATO country and we're, we're opening up a new frontier, aren't we? Paul Rogers. It, it's, it's a tricky one. I mean, essentially, the Erdogan government uh, is reacting very strongly in many different ways to the failed coup attempt. And it's worth remembering in Turkey itself, many people actually have a kind of conspiracy theory that this coup attempt was actually mounted with the active connivance of the West. It, it's really quite deep-seated, so there's this suspicion. At the same time, Erdogan obviously is hugely improving his own position and doing it in all kinds of ways. He also feels he's in a position to be more active uh, internationally, particularly in Syria, where you have this complex of a, a, a concern not really to, so much to take on Islamic State, unless it's too close to the Turkish border, but to limit the Syrian Kurds and not really to attack the, uh, the Assad government central. That's not part of Turkish policy. What makes it further complicated is that Turkey is trying to improve its relations with Russia. There's even been talk of having Russian planes flying out of the huge Inklet uh, base near Adana, which of course is the one that the Americans use at present and has incidentally a nuclear weapons store as well. So it's, it's fundamentally complex and there are no easy ways out. But of course it does send pressure because, as you say, it is a, a major member of NATO. Absolutely. Christopher Lee. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Paul saying there about some people wonder whether the, the, the whole coup attempt, if that's what it was, was not contrived. It's interesting, the conspiracy theorists, the people they can uh, mistrust more than anything else in, in the Turkish military, the gendarmerie, mm. and there is every indication that if, the, in fact, this thing was real, it couldn't have happened without the gendarmerie, if you go back to what happened at the time. So it's, it's giving credence. I Quite interesting in, in this assault on... Um, just this one place. This is the first time I think that ISIS has actually pulled out of, of anywhere. You know, like okay, we've gone. And it was the question of it wasn't such a, 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 a well marshaled thought that, that they were going to take the place over. Is that that, that that ISIS just just got back? And it was also this thing was. I mean, when you look at the size of it, I mean, fifteen hundred Syrian sort of free Syria army rebels. We've got twelve APCs, etc. Mm. Uh, it's not. It's not exactly the third division, is it, going in there to do it. They knew exactly what was there, and they'd softened it up over the previous five or six days when they went in, they were going through a bomb site. That's it. But it was Euphrates Shield was the operation. Somebody called it Euphrates Shield. Euphrates Shield is the term they have used for 15, 12, 15 years now, which signifies the, the, the Kurdish occupation on that other side of the Euphrates 
And that was really what the job was all about. Yes, keeping the Kurds at a distance, basically. So, Paul, the, the Turks, as one might have predicted, but they really are ploughing their own furrow amidst this mess. They are very much. I mean, they have the bottom line of wanting to be absolutely secure in their southern border. And as Chris was saying, they do not want significant Syrian Kurdish elements west of the Euphrates. They still retain the belief that the Assad regime should survive. And they look incredibly to, clo to closer relations with Russia, in spite of all the tensions that you had not long ago. Uh, remember when the Turks uh, shot down a Russian plane. Mm. But it is complex and unpredictable. And that's something which always worries the NATO high-ups. And the other, it's another side mm. is, you know, the, the Kurdish People's Protection Units or the uh, YPG that we're really always talking about in, in these cases. They are tactically first class. They're probably the best organized small units in the, let's expand it, you know, into, into Iraq, yeah. uh, Kirkuk, etc. Et there. Um, and this is something which we have to remember that these people are possibly the sort of best in, in the area. It is another example, rather like the Palestinians. Let us also remember that there is no Kurdistan, there is no president mm. of Kurdistan, there is no... The Kurds do not have their land. No. And if... Although they obviously live in... in, in and they in, control in, areas. Yes, they're, they're not... What I yeah. really mean, they're not countries. No, they're not uh, countries. But it's rather yeah. like Palestinians. Now, as this conflict goes on, whether it's the conflict in Iraq and the conflict in Syria goes on, um, and with within, uh, I suppose, Turkey... The Kurds, yet again, are appealing that they should have the recognition, mm. not necessarily to say have a, a huge Turkestan with the president, members of the United Nations, etc., but more recognition that they have a value. It's very difficult for them to sort out, especially in a place like Iran, uh, where they're kept under a hammerhead. Absolutely. Let's uh, move on to another issue. But first, just before we do, uh, remember, you can listen to this if you want as a podcast. Just uh, search in your podcast providing place for BFBS Syrup. <laughs> Still to come, remembering the coastal forces and the key part small boats played in the Second World War. They went in close to the enemy, shooting, fighting or firing a torpedo at very close range. The people who manned them were extremely brave people. Thirteen people, including seven students, have died in an attack by gunmen on the American University in the Afghan capital, Kabul, Wednesday night. This latest attack comes as the Taliban makes more gains right across the country. And this week, a U.S. soldier died in Lashkagar, a day after the Pentagon confirmed 100 troops had been deployed to help force back a really significant uh, Taliban advance. And, and, Paul, I mean, we talk about the summer fighting season, but the Taliban summer offensive, I think we can upgrade it to now, and it really has made progress, hasn't it? It's made a lot of progress I'm afraid and as you say right across Afghanistan Helmand province with its uh, major, major town rather than city of Lashkar is really at the centre of this. It was fought over so much by the, both British and American troops over the last 10 years. Economically it's an extremely important province mainly because you get something like 90% of all the world's illicit opium production, opium pop is grown in that one province and the Taliban have made determined efforts to get control of a great deal of it and they're succeeding I think what happened in, in Kabul last night was really part of the wider process of showing what they can do but essentially, this is becoming a much bigger problem than Obama realized. At least 9,000 American troops are going to stay in Afghanistan for a while. And, of course, we now know that the 
B1Bs that were flying out of Al-Udid Air Base in, uh, in Ghatta have been replaced by B-52s temporarily. So there's a lot of firepower going into this, and essentially there is a, a war, more or less an out-and-out war now escalating, hardly getting into the Western media, but certainly yeah. known in military circles. And the B-52s, the B-52s have never stopped being on rotation through Diego Garcia as well, mm. uh, it, you know, if needed, and for other, uh, other operations. Interesting figures just out, I think, uh, early this morning from the MOD. Uh, between 2009 and 2014, when the British pulled out of there, there were 5,313 uh, IED events. Mm-hmm. That is, an IED exploded, was, was saw, uh, somebody saw it and they sort of... Uh, discovered yeah, and discovered removed, or whatever. Yeah. But f- more than 5,000... It's the sort of figure that you want to put alongside the number of British soldiers who were lost in yeah. that in that area. That historically is the size of the problem. Um, that was the price paid. Still, though, could not leave it safe. Mm. I want to pick a parallel up with you without this, our top story we we're talking about. You mentioned about this attack on the uh, this this town just over the uh, border from Turkey and the IS fighters. They're melting away. They've learned. They've seen the Taliban. The Taliban melted away. They did it during the Soviet occupation. They did it when the British were there. Is that what IS ultimately will do? Do you think? Uh, well, they can always come back. Can't yeah, they? Exactly. In theory, in theory. But I mean, the point is that they, they don't actually need it. I mean, what they do need is move further south yeah. in, in the Euphrates, Mambij. Is, uh, Mambiji is, is, is a very good example where they can move there and may not or, or origin or, or, and, and not necessarily be, be attacked but don't forget what the Turks were after with the Kurds not ISIS itself yeah. One final question here to both of you 30 second answer each I think on this one please we said we're, we're out of the fighting we're still doing stuff in, uh, in uh, various parts training wise but now we have American soldiers back on the ground one sadly killed are we back again, or should we go back into a combat footing here to finally get rid of the Taliban? Well, we are back already in the in the form of special forces, both in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. In special forces, the British special forces aren't large, but they are around, and in Libya as well. Uh, beyond that, I think the really big question is, we're now, what, 15 years into this war in different ways, and we don't seem to be any closer to the finish. And one of the very big questions is whether there's got to be a, a bigger political dimension. I think that if um, ISIS, Islamic State, Daesh, call it what you will, is suppressed in the last year, next year or two, that will not be the end of it because the underlying reasons why groups like this can get support right across from the Mediterranean through to Western Asia, I'm afraid those, that, the conditions still remain. And I think this is the, area, the thing that is being missed. In the final analysis, there are probably not military solutions to this. And so personally, I'm dubious about seeing it very much as a war which has to be won. I don't think it can be won in its real form. There's only one practical side of this, that if you... I mean, the, the war has changed, obviously. There is no, uh, there is no structure, military structure, into which you would put a conventional... Uh, British military force at the moment with the command system, etc. Et that doesn't exist, which is why uh, if you want to talk about British forces, you talk about special forces. Mm. Moving on to another topic, and we've already touched a little on Palestine in the course of our discussions so far. 
um, as it not you know existing as a state in a way similar to Kurdistan. But uh, now there appears to be movement. Russian President Vladimir Putin has been talking up his global diplomatic role this week. He's offered to try and resolve the conflict in Gaza, offered to fix it, as he put it. And this follows other diplomatic moves over the last year. Putin seemingly looking to be at the centre of global politics. Christopher Lee and Paul Rogers still with me. And Christopher, what is Putin playing at? Is this coming off the back of his success in propping up Assad? I mean, my practical history goes back to another, into the 1970s when the Russians were doing exactly the same thing in the Middle East before they got kicked out of uh, Egypt. And it's interesting that President uh, Putin actually makes his, uh, his, his ideas known uh, to President Sisi in Egypt. Uh, and Bibi Netanyahu, the leader of Israel, says this is very, very good. He said because the, but the Palestinians, of course, they won't they won't turn up to it. It is a point, and it's a much bigger, much bigger tale to get into. Um, uh, and the fact that uh, President Putin sees a major role, not just of take advantage mm. of of the fact that America has pulled out, apart from uh, pulled out politically from 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 that part of the world. Uh, he sees it as as a point that he can actually take that role over. Um, I mean, that is too simplistic an answer, but it's not far from it. When you see his how he's restructured, for example, his uh, his own team at the moment, his special advisors, the people closest closest to him, is, is new thinking that's going on in Russia at the moment. Uh, and uh, he doesn't really have to worry about the next lot of elections, but he <laughs> will make sure. And I think that is very, very important. One thing to remember, somebody said to me the other day, well, you know, uh, Syria, if it goes wrong, is it going to be Russia's Afghanistan? Well, the answer, probably no. Mm. But that's the, if people are asking that sort of question, a Russian asking that question, um, uh, then it's worth listening to. Mm. Paul Rogers, spheres of influence brings to mind that old Cold War phrase, and that appears to be Russia's aim here. It is, yes. I mean, it's part of Putin's long-term determined aim to make Russia a big player on the world scene again, and it goes down very well with many Russians. It's even more needed at present because Russia has severe internal economic problems, and in fact the costs of the operations in Ukraine and in Crimea in particular have been very considerable and have actually been reflected in, for example, the the... Uh, intensity with which the Russian tax people actually make sure the taxes are paid, and that's being felt right across Russia. Now, as far as the Middle East is concerned, he sees this as the key area in which Russia can de develop its expertise and its influence very much. It is about influence. One is rather touched about the idea of, in fact, both President Putin and Tony Blair being relevant to this. I'm not sure how well they connect, but you never know. Maybe they will. You're listening to BFBS Sit Rep. Events have been taking place to mark the centenary of the Royal Navy's coastal forces. Exactly a hundred years ago, the first six boats were delivered to the Royal Navy. But what was the force? Well, earlier on, I spoke to Captain Trevor Robotham of the Coastal Forces Heritage Trust down in Portsmouth to discuss the fleet that had got affectionately the name a little later on, the Spitfire of the Seas. They were used towards the, towards the end of the First World War you may know about the, the Dieppe raid, which was a raid in the First World War on Dieppe Harbour, and they were used in Ostend Harbour uh, uh, for attacking the enemy in the First World War. But particularly, they came into prominence after the First World War when the, the Russian Revolution was taking place and the British government was supporting the Russian nationalists fighting against the Bolsheviks. And it was in 1919 that a coastal motorboat went into 
the Bay of Finland, and there was a, a cruiser, a Bolshevik cruiser, the Oleg, and uh, a, a young lieutenant, Lieutenant Augustus Agar, with his small 40-foot wooden coastal motorboat, uh, sank the, the big cruiser with a torpedo. And that put coastal forces in some kind of prominence. It showed that they got a very effective role to undertake. As we approached the Second World War, a number of boat builders who, who saw the need once again for fast attack craft. By the end of the war, we had 2,000. And they played a very significant part in all theatres of the war. I'm keen to know what happened after the Second World War, because as you mentioned there, over 2,000 of these boats built. The boats were dispersed with very quickly, the majority, the great majority. And they were sold off. And, and just after the war, you could find motor torpedo boats and motor gunboats being used as houseboats all around the British coast, because people could buy them for about £100. But most of them were got rid of in that way. There was a small flotilla retained, uh, which were based at HMS Hornet in Gosport. And they, they ran there in the early part of the Cold War, uh, doing operations around the Norwegian fjords and, um, and things like that. And in 1957, coastal forces were shot down as a branch of the Navy. I'm really keen to know what happened to these boats. Are there any left in their original condition that people can see? Yes, yes, there are. There's a motor gunboat, MGB-81, which has been saved over the years and is now owned by the Portsmouth Naval Base Property Trust. And, of course, the coastal motorboat, CMB-4, in which Lieutenant Augustus Agar gained his Victoria Cross by sinking the... Uh, the, the Russian Bolshevik cruiser Oleg. He's up in the Imperial War Museum at Dutchford. There we go. That was uh, Captain Trevor Robotham of the Coastal Forces Heritage Trust talking to me a little earlier. And it's well worth a visit to see some of those smaller ships uh, down at Portsmouth uh, Naval Base, the historic dockyard there. The, the big ones tend to take the uh, the plaudits, as it were, but the, the small ones are just as fascinating. It reminds me as well of a cameraman I know who works for Meridian Television. He was telling me that back in the 70s, they, at Southern Television, as it was then, had one of these old uh, Coastal Forces boats, and they used it as a camera boat. They used to mount three 16mm uh, cameras on it and film in the Solent. And a mate of mine was a director in Lily and a cameraman over. But that's by the by. Anyway, talking of big boats, Christopher and Paul, let's move on uh, to the end of an era, really, uh, for the Royal Navy. We've been uh, hearing about uh, HMS Illustrious as was. There was talk of her being kept. She's now going to be scrapped. What do we think? I think one of the most interesting things about Illustrious is if you go right back to the history of that group, you know, Invincible, Illustrious and Dark Royal, when they were first talked about, right back at the time when the Navy was losing or had lost its big fleet carriers, they were described as through-deck cruisers, basically to avoid the idea that the Navy was trying to maintain its aircraft carrier capability. And do you know how it happened? No, go, a, go on, tell. Right, there was a great guy called Terry Lewin, who was, oh, then, yes, he yes. was then Captain Future Developments. He became First Sea Lord and, in fact, Chief Defence Staff. And he went into a meeting with a minister, and the minister said, right, let's get this straight, no carriers. Yeah. And Terry Lewin said, you're absolutely right, absolutely right, minister. Straight out of yes, minister. You're absolutely right. It's a very <laughs> courageous move, minister. Yes, exactly. But what we do need is a through-deck cruiser. He said, OK, well, let's have a look at it at the next meeting. And that's how it is. I've got, I've got the memo. I've got the, well, a copy of the memo that it was done with. Can I just say one thing? Uh, coastal forces uh, given to the uh, the reserve at the moment used to have little minesweepers, and then you've solved your problem 
of having refugee detection force uh, between Portsmouth and Dover. Yes, because the ships are there, aren't they? Yeah. There are minesweepers. There are P2000s, for example. Not good in... Not good enough? Well, they're not, certainly not good in a 4-6. <laughs> I've, I've been on one in a 4-6. I know that. Yeah. Weymouth to Portland. I nearly yeah, but there, there, there is a value. I mean, one, one of the things that happened when we decided it was decided to get rid of, let's say, uh, mine hunting or mine countermeasures uh, or, 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 or drop it down is the fact that it was the only... Uh, only vessel that you had to make a major protection of force. I mean, an enemy is only going to say, let's say, Dover Harbour, by the way, put some mines in it, you're going to shut it down for two days, even if they hadn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's this small force which the way the whole scale goes, you look around, you need them, you, you, and you can take them anywhere. After mm. all, there's a couple of them in the eastern Mediterranean at the moment. Yes, there are, yes. So yeah. it's not a question yeah. you've got to have illustrious. Now, if you look back, illustrious and invincible and those sort of ships, you really ought to let them go. I mean, they had a good, they had a good run. Uh, but you know, it's it's the old thing. Unless you can send a stallion to stud, then do do the right thing by it. <laughs> yes, indeed. I thought we'd get a horse racing analogy in there somewhere. Well done, Christopher. Anyway, we're nearly out of time. Thank the Lord. And I just wanted to <laughs> thank very much my guest today, Christopher Lee, our regular person and dispenser of wisdom here in the studio, and also Paul Rogers, who's been on from the University of Bradford as well. Thank you very much, Paul, for joining us. We'll be back again uh, same time next week here on BFBS uh, Sit Rep. But uh, we'd like to hear from you. You can do Twitter and things like that if you like. Uh, we're at at BFBS sit rep and don't forget you can download the program as a podcast uh, search for your podcast provider thing bfbs sit rep join me next week but for me tim cooper and the team until then bye bye The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Rescue efforts continue.